Women of color are too often forgotten in most media coverage. From Wonder Media Network, The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics is all about amplifying the voices of women of color. It's the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. Host Ashanti Golar speaks with influential activists, politicians, journalists, and more who are playing a transformative role in the 2020 elections and beyond. From Joy Ann Reed to Alexis McGill Johnson, these women are changing the face of politics. Listen and subscribe to The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break from the cult of perfection to fear less, fail more, and live bolder. And today our show is about the crucial Black Lives Matter protests happening right now in response to the ongoing violence at the hands of police. Protests reignited by police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and countless other Black people in the United States. If you're listening, I wanna urge you to take action to support this movement, especially if you're not black. We need to support this movement with humility and listen to black women. We need to pass the mic and support their work with our time, money, and platform. There are so many resources available about how to help, and you can find links to some of them in our show notes. As we're doing this work and supporting the fight for black lives as allies, I wanna reflect on what failure means in this moment and going forward. The reality is there's no such thing as a perfect ally. Being an ally to black communities and people is a lifelong commitment. Working to dismantle anti-blackness and systematic racism is a lifelong commitment. Every one of us is gonna fail at certain times. And yes, that includes me. But we can't let our fear of failure or discomfort deter us from doing this important work and fighting for a better world. Joining me to talk about this historic moment is my friend, the activist Tabitha St. Bernard Jacobs. We met organizing the youth contingent of the Women's March. She's also a mother, entrepreneur, incredible designer, and ethical fashion advocate. I so appreciate Tabitha taking the time and energy to have this conversation, and I hope you learn something from it. So let's start, Tabitha, by just checking in. I think I'm in a constant state of just exhaustion and just, I'm just really tired. Um, I've been working all day at Women's March and then in the night, I usually do a lot of writing um, just because like that's the time when I get to really focus when the kids are in bed, but also it's the time where I get to sort of um, write about my thoughts about how I feel right now, but also try to to offer to the public a little bit more education about around what's needed in this moment. Um, but it's, it's been just also very, very emotionally exhausting. I think the last couple of weeks, just seeing, um, seeing sort of the continuation of black bodies be killed, be hurt through all of the protests and so forth. It's, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on black folks to see people looking like us on the front lines, putting their lives at risk every single day in the midst of a pandemic when folks should be home resting. They have to be on the front lines fighting for all of us. So it's pretty exhausting. Yeah. And you've been doing really powerful and important work 
uh, on youth and on the next generation. We got a chance to work together on the Women's March, which um, I want to talk about later. But I was really moved by the letter that you wrote to white parents. And that was published in Romper. And what, what made you write that? And why do you think that teaching kids anti-racism is so essential? I, I wrote that letter from a place of sort of deep pain. Um, I I am half black, half Indian, um, and I and I'm married to a white person. So half of my family is white, and then I have black parts of my family, and I also have Indian parts of my family, and for the last couple of weeks, I've been sort of like holding a container for especially the younger members of the black side of my family um, to help them work through some of the trauma that they're going through right now with what's been in the news. Um, Just helping them have these conversations, just being able to be a safe place for them to know that they are seen, they are heard, and that what I'm fighting for right now is really for them to be able to live lives that are full of joy and full of freedom and full of success too. Um, And then also at the same time, I've been having conversations with the white side of my family about the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist. And I strongly believe that if you're not actively working towards being anti-racist, and we know it's a journey, we know you're you're never going to get to a point where you're like, I woke up this morning and I'm anti-racist, but committing to that journey and really committing to the work so that it's a lifetime of work, um, we know that it's a big difference between just being able to say that you're not racist. So that's where it came from. And, you know, just thinking also about the fact that Black parents don't have a choice but to have these conversations with their kids from a very young age. I've been talking to my son since he was about two about the color of his skin, about what it means, about about the different parts of his family, about race, and... uh, I have no choice. I have to do that. And I have to do that to help sort of safeguard him from this country that that he lives in. And I know that white parents have that choice. They can sort of choose whether they want to talk to their kids about race or not. They can live in this little bubble where race almost doesn't exist for them. Um, and I wanted to sort of write this letter to get them thinking about all the different ways in, the, in their lives where they might not be anti-racist, but they could actually work towards it. And I speak about, you know, it could be in your school? How many kids of color are there in your children's school? Um, You know, thinking about are are people of color, are black people safe to be walking in the streets where, where you live? Are black people welcomed into your home, not in a way that's tokenizing? And would they consider you friends as well as you think of them as friends? So just these little ways that I broke down in the article about ways that people can start thinking about their journey towards becoming more more anti-racist. And as I said in the article, it's not sort of like a checklist where you say, okay, I score, I got five points today. It's really an ongoing process and an ongoing journey. Yeah. And it's hard. I remember, I, mean, I think it's hard for parents of color. I remember when Sean, I think you saw, as you, as you were talking to Tabitha, I was like having this very distinct memory of playing shoots and ladder with Sean. And mm-hmm. he picked the blonde boy right? Mm -hmm. As the person he wanted to be. And I was really bothered by it Mm because I was like, wait, why did you pick him? Mm -hmm. And because to me, it was like an example of him prioritizing whiteness. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we struggled like, like this a lot, you know, being Indian, because Mm -hmm. we live in a culture that prioritizes fair skin and not going in the sun. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these things that you are culturally, um, embedded in your culture, right? That prioritizes 
light skinned. Mm -hmm. And so I was very conscious of making sure that Sean didn't hate himself in the way that mm -hmm. I think a lot mm -hmm. of us did, right? Mm -hmm. Because we didn't feel like we belong. So it's, it, and it's hard, right? Like I took, mm -hmm. as you know, I took Sean to a protest yesterday and now he's five and this is, you know, we, cause we've been together with on a lot of them. And before it was like, he was there with me. He didn't really know what was going on, but this time he asked really questions. And, mm -hmm. and I do think the difference right between like an anti-racist parent points to examples, right. Of, of racism and stereotypes and doesn't just teach their kids that color doesn't matter. And that's an important right. difference. Mm -hmm. That's so critically important. I think a lot of a lot of white parents say, you know, I don't see color and I want to raise my kids to not see color. And that's actually a problem, you know, to mm -hmm. actually not see color or to raise your kids to not see color because being black is such a huge part of my identity. So if you tell me you don't see my color, that means that you don't see me. And that's a problem because you're not seeing my suffering. You're not seeing my pain. You're not seeing my journey. So if you're raising your kids to not see color, that's actually not what we actually want, want to be happening. And I totally hear you on the protest. I took my son to one yesterday um, and he asked me, he was like, mom, if the policeman who killed the guy is white, then how come that there are white people protesting? And it, it just kind of blew my mind because he's like processing and having all these questions. And it's so different from the questions he had when he was two. So it's, it's being able to respond to him according to the age that he's at. And a lot of parents have asked me, what is an age appropriate way to talk to kids about race? Can you provide some guidance? And it's really about the parent knowing the child and knowing where they're at in terms of their journey to be able to know how best to, to really approach these conversations with them. Because each child is sort of different in terms of what they're conscious of, in terms of the things that they're noticing. And it's up to the parent to really broach the subject in a way that is really compassionate, but is loving and is guiding as well. Yeah. And I mean, Charles Blow had a phenomenal article today in the Times about mm -hmm. white privilege. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and part of being anti-racist is acknowledging white privilege and mm -hmm. what you want parents, white parents, I think, to do, because you and I see this. Right. It's like white children are much more comfortable taking up space. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. being loud and asking for what they want. Whereas I know my parents taught me, you know, be quiet. Don't call attention to yourself. Right. Don't mm -hmm. ask for that. Like shrink. And mm -hmm. so we've mm -hmm. been teaching our children to shrink, to basically survive. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways, white parents really teaching their children that they do have unearned privilege at the mm -hmm. youngest of possible ages. I think it's so important to basically breaking down systematic and structural racism. Mm hmm. And then when, when you look at how that carries over into their adult lives, you look at white kids feeling, you know, braver when they're going for job interviews, they're feeling more confident in certain spaces, they're, they feel more confident to make certain risks. And, you know, kids of color, you're absolutely right, like we're taught that we have to shrink ourselves. Like I remember growing up and being quiet was this virtue that the adults actually applauded around me. If I was able to sit still and be quiet in one spot and not take up space and shrink myself, then that was that was something that was actually celebrated. And I think like we we really push against that now 
raising my son. And I know that I have a lot of conversations with, with also my sister and she, and she's also raising her kids to be very different, to take up space. And, and she, she has two girls as well. So there's that whole dynamic with girls as well, where it's important that they know that they can use their voices and they could take up space and they can, they can be loud and they could seek out opportunities and they could take risks. And it carries out into like every part of parenting, I think. Oh, I'm so with you. Like I intentionally want Sean to do that. Yeah. And it's so, I, I'm so happy you understand that. Like I, we both are on the same page about that. And I think that's what like my message is for parents of color is mm-hmm. to tell your kids to take up space because it is not how we were raised mm-hmm. and it's going to be very uncomfortable for white people yeah. because they're going to have to, that it, it, you know, black girls are disciplined, right? At, at twice the rate of other children mm-hmm. for like the exact same behavior. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you ask teachers, you know, why they, they really believe that they are anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we have to really go deep into these kind of conversations and it's going to make people feel uncomfortable, but I think that's the only way that we get out of it. I know, um, Today you talked, you spoke on a panel about uh, tough talks, unpacking white privilege and raising anti-racist children. How did it go? I think it went pretty good. My sort of measure for how good these conversations go is the type of questions that we get from people. If we create a space where people are asking the difficult questions, then I feel like we're actually, we've actually accomplished something of impact. And I think that there were some really brave questions that were coming in from the people that were, that were attending the webinar. So I was, I was glad about that. Well, what was the brave question that popped out that you remember? So I think people were asking for specific guidance around how do you talk to your kids about anti-racism? Like, how can you have these conversations? Parents were asking, you know, how can I model anti-racist behavior for my kids, which is something that um, that I speak about, that if you're only telling your kid this is what it means to be anti-racist, don't do this, don't do that, don't say this, don't say that then your kid isn't getting a full idea of what anti-racism really means. What it really means is the parents also modeling anti-racist behavior and unpacking, you know, what does it look like to have a diversity of people come over to your house? Um, are the friends you have that actually come over to your house, are they all white? Are the kids that actually come over to your house, are they all white? Um, do you clutch your purse closer to you when a black guy walks next to you? All these things that kids notice, you know, how do you talk about things in the news? You know, I live in the city, so I have a small apartment and I speak often with my husband about things we see in politics and we try to keep our convos as child appropriate as possible, but we get incensed about some of the things we see in the news and we talk about it. So just modeling for kids how to talk about these things is also super important. So I've been talking about like this idea of like perfectionism and allyship, because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of non-Black folks feel uncomfortable being allies because they don't want to make a mistake. And I think that this is particularly like I think shows up as I've seen in when parents are young and they're looking for other diverse kids for their white kids to play with. Right. Mm -hmm. What's your message to them? So I think the first thing to think about if you are an ally or if you're just coming into this work or the last couple of weeks have been particularly horrifying for you and it's been an eye opener is to step into spaces with a lot of humility. There are people who 
have been living the experience that you're just kind of discovering about, like we've been living this our entire lives. There are activists who have been working on these things for decades. So come into it with, with a lot of humility and come into it with a learning spirit. There's a lot of resources out there about how to be mindful about actually entering spaces where there are Black people and people of color. There's a lot of resources about how to raise your kids to be anti-racist, how to raise your kids to also not do harm to other people at the same time. So do some research, commit yourself to an ongoing learning process for yourself. And I think that's really the first step. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've had several people come to me, you know, people have had different reactions to what's been going on. Some people, they get it right away that, you know, you know, like they get, they realize that I've been living with a ton of privilege. I want to do better. I'm going to learn. I'm going to buy this book or that book. Um, and some people make it about themselves. They're like, this is devastating for me. This has been so awful for me to witness. Um, and, uh, I, I, I would just advise white people who want to be allies to not make it about yourselves. This is already a deeply traumatic sort of existence for black people. Um, we don't need to take on your white tears right now. Um, so do that learning, really commit to that learning and enter spaces with a lot of humility. And I think that's really the first step. Mm. You know, it's interesting. We're, we're kind of similar in age. And so we went through Rodney King and mm -hmm. Trayvon Martin and mm -hmm. Eric Carr. And like, we've been, you know, for the past two, three decades, especially in New York, is a lot of the same people, right? They were involved in organizing mm -hmm. and speaking and marching. And what's been interesting mm -hmm. to me this time around is it's different people. Um, right. How do you feel about that? I'll tell you how I want to feel and I'll tell you how I actually feel. Mm. Um, I want to feel optimistic. I want to feel hopeful. I want to be invigorated by the impact that's already been made. And in many ways, I am. I see um, there's a list going around social media today about all of the wins over the last couple of weeks. And um, I think in any movement space, that stuff really pushes you forward and helps you keep going. Um, so there's definitely been some impact over the last couple of weeks. Um, I struggle a lot with... Uh, things that become too mainstream and too palatable for white people. Because what I, f I find tends to happen is that it becomes really palatable for white people and then it shifts out of the public consciousness and then it becomes something else. Um, so that, that worries me. Um, that's why in all the work that I've been doing, um, in the last couple of weeks, I've really been trying to push people to make systemic change with the brands I've been talking to. It's really about how are you committing to this work in the long run, not just making a one-time donation, not just posting on social media. It's not enough for you to post a black box on Instagram, but what are you doing to really be anti-racist within your company, within your families? What practices are you actually committing to in the long run? Because we know this is going to shift out of the, the news cycle at some point. Um, and we have to make sure that this is not just a fad. Um, and I feel bad saying, that because no. I, I because all of this activism that's like bubbled up like I want people to know that I welcome them and I see them and there's a part of me that feels validated that there's tons of outrage right now but I'm committed to pushing people forward and making sure that people are actually committing to practicing anti-racist in the long run yeah I also think you know 
what's been, what I felt has also been different is it feels like it's one layer deeper, right? You're Mm. not just getting to the systematic and structural racism. You're really starting to hit at privilege. And I think you're trying Mm -hmm. to, there's been a lot of, um, calling out of the Amy Coopers in the world. And we, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you see this in fashion, right? In media of people who everyone else thinks are woke, but when you really know them, you know, they're not. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think really forcing people who think they're liberal, who think they're progressive, um, mm-hmm. to really ask themselves, well, well, what have you done to really unpack your unearned privilege? How have you lifted a black voice in your organization? How have, when have you invested in a black founder? When have you made a donation, uh, or to a black organization? When have you caught mm-hmm. yourself, right? Um, mm-hmm. saying something or, or doing something, uh, that is racist. I mean, for me in the South Asian community, it's been very, I've been really trying to focus kind of my activism on pushing them to have the hard conversations because really what one of the images that I can't get out of my mind uh, in George Floyd's murder was the Asian police officer who was standing in front of him mm-hmm. and the Arab American mm-hmm. shop owner who called the police on him. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of bystanders and bystanders of color, you know what mm-hmm. I mean, that perpetuate you know, racism and, and there needs to be, you know, a reckoning in our communities as well. And we, in those conversations mm-hmm. are painful because we think, mm-hmm. we think we are there, right? We think we have mm-hmm. a shared, um, history of oppression, but we don't, we still create these hierarchies amongst ourselves. And so I hope that this moment is to talk about that, right? Yeah, and I agree with you. There does seem to be something deeper and there is sort of like an unearthing that's happening right now. Things are being dredged up. Things that have been hidden for decades are kind of bubbling up to the surface. So I definitely have have hope when when I see that. I've actually seen friendships break apart in the last couple of weeks um, where folks are having these really brave and difficult conversations with their white friends and calling on them to take a stand and their white friends have struggled with that and they've just said this is no longer acceptable to me as a black person I can no longer continue to be friends with a white person who isn't able to take a stand with me so there's definitely it's definitely a moment of reckoning for quite a lot of people um and I'm hoping that this is the start of something. I hope this is sort of the catalyst for us to continue to do deeper reflection with each other and to really commit to anti-racist practices in our homes and in our schools. Um, I actually had a conversation with, with my son's school principal um, when this first sort of bubbled to the surface and she was really receptive to having conversations with the kids around race. Um, and it's, it's a very mixed school. I mean, we, we live in Brooklyn, so it's definitely very much needed. And I've seen differences in how his teacher like structures the, the book of the day, or like she structures the question of the day, they're delving in a little, a little deeper. Um, she actually started talking about race and, and, and all the things that come, that come with that. So I think you're right. I think there is something deeper at play and it's up to us, um, sort of like the voices out there to help people lean into making sure that these are practices that we continue to maintain mm. as, as time goes on. 
Tabitha, yeah, I think that that's one of the things that I've really seen that's different is this focus on youth and this this focus on having conversations with your kids about race. Why do you think that that message is resonating Mm -hmm. now and not the other moments where police brutality and and racism has come up? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you. For me and what I've heard from some white moms is that right before George Floyd died, he was calling out for his mother. Um, And I think that that hit people different. I think that the people that know that part of that, that, that part of his assaults, it really resonated with them Mm. because that experience of needing your mother, that experience of your of a child crying out for their mother when they're most vulnerable, when they're in pain, when they're suffering, that's something that really that moms can sort of identify with mm-hmm. um, and see their kid through, you know. And I think it's also a question of um, the the people that are getting involved right now are a lot of liberal white people who may not have. Who, who may have thought of themselves as not racist before, but not not actively anti-racist. And we see a lot of parents right now who are really responding to this. I think the difference is that people are thinking about, about what systems have they continued to uphold that will result in a moment where a white man can place his knee on the neck of a black man until he dies. And I think that seeing themselves in those systems is something that hasn't really happened before and is so important to this moment. And knowing he's being taped mm-hmm. and that not even shift, not even shift. anything in his humanity. And if you look at his face, he just has this casual mm, look on his face, smirk. just like he just didn't care. He just didn't care. And that, that breaks me. That really breaks me. Yeah. It's, you know, I think for from a just a humanity perspective, watching someone get murdered on video and it being so long and in the way that it was, it you can't ever recover from mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that black people have to live with this trauma circulating the Internet continuously. I mean, this is not the first video that's come out of a black person being killed or attacked in in any way i mean it's a continuous assault and trauma that black people have to live with all the time and somebody said you know this isn't this isn't a new wave of murders of black people that now it's just different because it's being filmed because everybody's walking around with a camera that they pull out and they just point and that's really the difference that it, now it's being documented Yeah. I also think COVID and the fact that, you know, 70% of those who are dying from COVID are black. Two Mm -hmm. out of three essential workers are black women, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's every, you really, even though it's not new for us, but for so many people that they're connecting the dots, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? For the first time between these things and then are are really, for some succumb with guilt right? And mm-hmm. are asking themselves, well, what's my role in this and what can I do? And I think the question is, is will it last and will it be real? Which gets me to a question like, what are some of the, you know, there's a lot of conversations about defunding the police today, right? There's a, uh, what are some of the proposals or policy changes that you think can make a difference? It's really, it's a systemic problem that permeates 
everything in this country, from education to healthcare to our government to um, to just everything to to law enforcement to everything. And I think that folks are ready to see systems dismantled that no longer work for the most marginalized among us. And I think that's what's different this this time around. I think the things that, that folks are pushing for, I, I wrote another article um, specifically for fashion brands last week. Um, and some of the things I mentioned, some of the systemic changes that I recommended um, is making sure that you're, you you have a diverse board, making sure that it's not just a tokenized black person on your board, but it's actually a space where black people can congregate and be and be in deeper community with each other, where they feel safe to voice their concerns, to call out certain certain things that they see within within the brand or the organization. Um, it's also about where you hire interns. We know that interning is sort of like the first step into a path to moving up in a brand or a company. Um, where, where are you hiring your interns from? Are you only seeking out interns from colleges that have high tuition? Are you seeking out interns who are on scholarship or specifically black students who don't have a lot of opportunities? Um, are you making sure that even in your marketing that you're not just hiring black models or even the racially ambiguous models that are super trendy right now, but are you actually hiring models and a black creative team so that that model isn't the only person of color who is sort of like front facing so people can think that you're actually diverse when you're not actually thinking about these things. So there are so many things that brands and orgs and people can do in this moment to push themselves out of their comfort zones and to really make sure that we're changing systems right now. Yeah. Um, really thinking critically about every step of everything that you do is the most important thing. And that's the thing that's really been um, so interesting, right? Because when things like this happen, people are like, well, what can I go do? You know, what organization can I fund or what organization can I start or how can I support black people? And it's kind of like, listen, there are a lot of, as we know, incredible black leaders running, I mean, color for change, right? It's like, you know, women's march. It's, I mean, you, you name it, like in every single area of activism, uh, emerge, right? Black women running basically the largest organization to get more women, you know, in political office. So there's so much, there's an abundance. I mean, the, you know, Alicia Garza, right? There's an abundance of, of leadership in the community, but what people need to do is look in their own spaces and ask themselves, what are they doing? Right. So like, like you said, in fashion, how many black folks on the board, how many black folks in the senior leadership team in venture, right? How many companies have you invested in? But those are the questions that are harder to have because there's always a reason why that can't be done. And I think that's where the push needs to be. Mm You're absolutely right. I think there's always, I think the easiest way is to just do what you've been doing before, is to do what you've always been doing. And I think that we have an opportunity to push folks into a new world, into a new country where we're ensuring that we're building anti-racist spaces. And there's always there's always a place to start. I mean, we all started our activism somewhere. There's always some moment or some action that propels people into becoming more active within their within their spaces. Um, and if, if people are at that moment right now, that's completely fine. But it's about making sure that it's ongoing, making sure these changes are really systemic, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And maybe this is where I'm not hopeful because to actually, you know, to actually fight against structural racism, we have to undo privilege, white privilege and unearned privilege. And we still have this myth of meritocracy, right? People don't want to put people of color on boards because they still think that they are quote, not qualified, right? Mm -hmm. People don't want to hire folks as they don't want to quote, lower the bar. I hear this all the time in tech. And, you know, it's the same issue that I feel like post me too, the way to really have moved things forward was to have those hard conversations with men right? About their behavior. And we were uncomfortable doing that. And so just like we are uncomfortable really talking about white privilege for what it is. And that's the only way things will change. Yeah. And I think too, it's just, you know, higher black people to help you with this work. There are lots of black people, lots of black firms out there that, that, really have done the deep work in these areas, hire them, learn from them, pay them what they're worth, and really commit to making change. You know, I mean, we're in a time where lots of people have lost their jobs and a lot of brands and companies um, have scaled back and have actually had to let some people go. So the conversation of, of bringing on new people may not be something that they want to think about right now, but now is an opportunity to do the research, to build yourself a deck of talent people that you can go to, talented black people that you can go to when you're able to start hiring again. Do that research now when things are a little bit more quiet, when things are a little bit not as busy, um, and really be be ready to take action when things bounce back. Because I really believe that things are going to bounce back, and we have to be ready to meet that moment with the same clarity and purpose that we're seeing on the streets right now. Yeah. Make that commitment for the future. So I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything you want to talk about or leave our listeners with? Um, I think the biggest thing which we've talked about a lot is just making sure that you're committing to a practice of anti-racism, whatever that means, wherever you're at, whatever starting point you're at, start with learning, start to really commit yourself to learning about what it actually means to be anti-racist and make sure that you're committing to that practice in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces. Use your privilege to challenge these spaces within your life and really use the voice you have to, um, to really advocate for black people and people of color because we're in this moment now where we need white allies we need people mm -hmm. to step up and to stand up right now and we're we all need to show up in this moment how can listeners follow you and support your work uh, folks can follow me on Instagram, Tabitha STB. Um, folks can also join the Women's March mailing list. We are leaning in really deeply into this work. Um, so if you want to get more involved, if you specifically want to get more involved around the defund the police work that we're doing, um, we kicked off a defund the police 101 call last week that was really well attended. So uh, you can always jump right into that work and um and make real change. Amazing. Well, thank you. It was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. You just heard Tabitha St. Bernard Jacobs. She's an activist, designer, ethical fashion advocate, and Women's March organizer. You can find a link to the letter to white parents that we talked about linked in the show notes, along with resources for getting involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. Thanks for tuning into today's show. You can catch a new episode of Brave Not Perfect every other Tuesday. 
Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode was produced by me, Ashley Dejan, with help from Tanya Zaporonik, Ashley Gramby, and Olivia Quintana. Brave Not Perfect is also made possible by Deborah Singer and Charlotte Stone. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.